Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and I'm fired up to bring you another great episode this week as I welcome in Kareem Farah, a former high school math teacher who now serves as the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. The Modern Classrooms Project is a nonprofit organization that's leading a movement of educators in implementing a self-paced, mastery-based instructional model that leverages technology to meet the needs of every student. This is a three-tiered approach, and it's an innovative blended learning model that really begins with uh, teacher-created videos and goes through the process of self-paced instruction and mastery-based grading, and it eliminates the one-size-fits-all classroom. This is a innovative model, and you certainly want to follow Kareem at KareemFarah23. You also want to check out the website at modernclassrooms.org, where you can find a free online course that will help get you ready to implement this new blended learning model for the upcoming school year. I'm a huge advocate for blended learning model, as many of you know. I'm also a big fan of what Kareem Fair has been doing. So he is a game changer in how we think about educating kids in our schools. So this is a good one, folks. Kareem's a great guy. He's doing some wonderful things. You certainly want to check out the Modern Classrooms Project. Great conversation here. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Kareem Farah. Hi, I'm Dan Krinas, host of the Leader of Learning podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Reimagined Schools podcast, the show that shines light on positive leadership, technology integration, and innovative solutions to transform our schools. Featuring many of the nation's top educators, tune in each week to hear from best-selling authors, popular speakers, and thought leaders throughout K-12 education as we continue the conversation on how to create better schools for kids. From the podcast studio in Georgetown, Kentucky, here's your host, Dr. Greg Goins. Very excited to bring in my guest today, Kareem Farah, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, also a, uh, an outstanding high school math teacher uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Kareem, so glad to have you with us today. Greg, thanks for having me. Extremely excited to be here. Well, I've been a big fan of, of what you've been doing the last few years. Uh, like a lot of people, I probably found you on Edutopia, where uh, there was a great video that was produced when you were teaching math at Eastern High School in the DC area and uh, high poverty school. And, uh, you know, teaching math is difficult to begin with, but whenever you have to deal with students at varied ability levels, uh, kids have a lot of trauma in their lives, absenteeism is an issue. You really decided at some point something had to change. And that's kind of where your story begins. That's right. That's right. Um, I was an educator for years and in very many ways, taught how I was told to teach, taught how I knew teaching uh, as a student myself, which is you stand in the front of the room, you deliver some information to kids live, they then go do some sort of activity and then they execute some sort of exit ticket and then you, you go to the next lesson the next day. Um, realized reasonably quickly within my teaching career that that model is really, really ineffective for students in general, 
but uniquely ineffective for students with a high diversity of academic and social emotional needs. Um, I use the example of attendance, frankly, as the simplest way to expose how bad one size fits all sort of traditional teaching can be. Um, you know, if a student misses class, they've lost the opportunity to engage in as rich a learning experience as their peers. And if that student is missing class for reasons that are outside of their control, oftentimes reasons that infuse, you know, challenging equity issues, now we're doubling down on the challenges that they already faced. Not only did they miss class because they couldn't make it because they were taking care of a sibling or dealing with some sort of traumatic experience, but now when they do come to class, they feel overwhelmed and behind. And you know, there's many examples of why this is challenging, whether you're academically struggling to understand the content that's being delivered live, you're absent, you're experiencing trauma, but those traditional approaches just make it significantly more difficult for students to feel successful and is obviously not a differentiated approach to teaching and learning. Teacher at the front of the room is not how you're going to be able to differentiate instruction. So seeing those issues come to life is what ended up inspiring the creation of the model that we share with educators at the Modern Classrooms Project. So I kind of want to set this up for you and also kind of help our listeners understand what it is we're talking about. It's really a three-tiered model that begins with blended instruction in which students are watching videos. And I want to hit on these individually, but to kind of just give an overview. And then mm -hmm. the second part of the, of the process is self-paced learning mm -hmm. because we know kids need time to either work ahead or to catch up. And then the, the last part of it is mastery-based learning. So whenever you were putting these things together, I know you had another math teacher in your building, Robert Barnett, and, and the two of you are actually uh, the ones that put together the Modern Classroom Project. Uh -huh. Whenever you're kind of going through this model, at what point did either one of you have that aha moment that this might be a system that's going to be highly effective for your students? So it's a, it's a great question. Um, the model was created exclusively out of a need to meet better students needs better. So we weren't like thinking, let's create an instructional approach. We were thinking what doesn't work for kids and what does. So the model actually organically developed. We started with the understanding that the live lecture makes no sense and that we can't replace ourselves with YouTube video creators because ultimately our students want to hear from us. We got to build relationships with kids and we know our kids best. So we started by saying, let's just get rid of these live lectures and build instructional videos, our own instructional videos. It wasn't until that point that we realized, well, wait a minute, if we replace our live lecture, now kids can actually be at different spots because that live lecture was the only reason we had to use the fixed pace approach. So then we started to infuse that self-pacing. And then once we started to infuse self-pacing, now we realized, well, then what should we use to determine whether a kid goes from lesson two to lesson three? And that's when we arrived at using mastery checks and doing mastery-based grading. So the model kind of developed organically out of logic and out of need. We didn't realize that it was something that we should truly be scaling and sharing with others. After I won the award for DC Public School's Most Innovative Educator, and they built a little video about it, and we just saw how many educators were thirsty for this. We started to realize that educators across the country knew that traditional approaches to teaching and learning were not differentiated, were not meeting students' needs. And what they wanted was an actual blueprint. They were tired of the buzzwords, tired of the theory, like how many times are you going to tell a teacher to differentiate without giving them an actual living and breathing instructional model that helps them differentiate? So once educators started to see it in action, they started to ask for it. And that's when we knew it wasn't just something going on in our two respective classrooms, but actually worth sharing with educators at scale. So as we as we piece this out um, throughout the three tiers, beginning with the video and, you know, you probably remember, like I do not too long ago when when flipped learning was the great 
buzzword. Everyone got excited about that. The problem with flipped learning was if you just expect kids to go home and watch things on their own, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, although it's great on paper, in practice, it's probably not going to work. The great thing about, uh, you know, your, your blended instructional model, number one is you're making the video, so it's your voice, and you're still their teacher. And number two is it's part of the station rotation. They're in the classroom, so it's part of the classroom instruction. So I, I think that's huge, and that's something that people need to understand whenever you talk about video. I could not agree more. You've hit two critical elements of the way that we do our work that's quite different. The first piece being the distinction between flipped, which is that you do not tell students, hey, you go watch lesson two at home and then we do lesson two activity in class. The two problems with that is an equity issue, first of all, like not everyone has computers and not everyone has access to, to internet at home easily. But the second issue with that is you're actually limiting the more exciting part of the model, which is self-paced, right? If you just do a flipped model, every kid is still doing the same thing at the same time. But what we're really trying to get at is differentiating instruction. And the way that you differentiate is by honoring the fact that some students need more time on a lesson and some kids need less time on a lesson. So there's that key distinction there. And then the second piece is obviously the need to, for kids to hear a teacher's voice. You know, educators are the most important factor in student learning outside of the students themselves. Um, so we can't just outsource ourselves. So we tried this, by the way, uh, many times and saw that when you kind of found a canned curriculum video and threw it in front of kids, they were frustrated and did not find it digestible, had a bunch of questions, and there was clearly distance between myself and the child relationship building. And, and I think that was a great concept and something that's been highly effective for, for this model. The other thing I really like is the, self, the self-paced structure, because mm -hmm. the videos, as an example, gives kids a chance to, you know, pause, rewind, take extra time to go back and watch again. You know, for me, sometimes I have to watch a video two or three times to really grasp the concept. But the thing I really got from the video, the Edutopio video, was kids are helping each other. You know, kids are going back and helping kids that aren't uh, mastering certain elements. And it, it's really kind of a collaborative team approach was was that a surprise when you rolled it out or did you kind of expect that there would be this collaboration and kind of this we are crew mentality? You know, I think ultimately any educator understands that collaboration needs to be a part of your classroom if you want to create a healthy and rich environment for your students. I, similar to being told to differentiate instruction, looking around saying, how do I differentiate if I'm in a live lecture and have everyone at the same pace, also found the notion of collaboration to be one of these terms that were used quite frequently, but I didn't actually see the benefits of it in my classroom when I taught traditionally. If I just go tell Jessica to work with Tommy because I put them in a pair, that doesn't mean Jessica and Tommy have actual any benefit of working with each other at the moment. In fact, I might just be annoying both those students and every teacher knows that feeling of think, pair, share, forcing kids to work together. And there's a lot of frustration coming from kids. Now, when I used to hear that frustration, I used to think, you know, come on guys, like, why aren't y'all just doing this? Why aren't you all working together? But I realized in retrospect that collaboration is supposed to be a functional and useful experience, not something that we just force people to do because we want to say kids collaborated or adults collaborated. And what we saw with our model is we were facilitating data-driven collaboration. So if Jessica is helping Tommy, it's because Jessica mastered the skill that Tommy is trying to work on. Or Jessica and Tommy are working on the exact same skill and need more support. And they, there's benefit to both minds kind of collaborating together and problem solving. So we knew we wanted collaboration to be a part of the classroom. I think we underestimated how exciting it would be to actually have data-driven collaboration so that students actually saw the purpose to working with each other. 
So you start to see this organic collaboration come to life because kids are standing up and saying, I got to find someone who's mastered four because I'm stuck and I have evidence who's mastered four. So I can go ask this person, that person or the other person. And that really create a healthy form of collaboration. And one that I think emulates the workplace. One thing I used to tell my students all the time is if every time I struggle with something, I went straight to my boss, my boss would be pretty annoyed with me. If every single time I ran into an issue and I called the principal or the superintendent and said, hey, my projector isn't working, my boss would be like, uh, can you stop? Uh, we, need, we have other elements of the way the system works to support you. And wanted to, to teach our students the same structure. Don't just go straight to your teacher when you hit a roadblock. Go find someone in the room that might have the expertise you're seeking. And we actually were able to give our students the evidence of who those people were so they could utilize their colleagues and their, and their peers better. And then the last part of the three-tiered process would be the, mas the mastery-based exit ticket. And uh, I'm sure you get this question a lot because anytime you do something innovative and new, and new you're going to get probably some doubters. But probably the question you get a lot is about grades. How, do we, how are we going to teach a traditional math course and have traditional grades if we're going to do something different? Uh, and I'm sure the standards are part of your lesson planning. When you're making videos and all those type of things. But how do you speak? Am I right when I say that grades is probably the number one question you get? Yeah, it's a, it's a frequent question that we get. And I always find it interesting because I, you know, used, I taught this course traditional algebra one, algebra two, geometry uh, in a big traditional district with quarterly grade systems and Aspen was my grade book. So, you know, everyone who does this model, not everyone, but the vast majority are doing it in highly traditional settings and using the basic systems and structures that already exist. What I tell folks simply is if you run a modern classroom, you recognize the fact that you would rather have a kid master seven out of 10 lessons fully then have a surface level understanding of all 10. I think if you or I or anyone else is presented with that trade-off, whether it's for our own kids, for students that we're teaching or for ourselves, we'd say, well, I'd much rather master 70% of the content than sort of understand 100% of it. And that obviously shows on the test too. Students gonna to perform much better when they've mastered seven out of 10 lessons than if they don't really understand all 10 lessons. And that's when you get test scores of like 30% because kids basically weren't very clear on anything. And the same applies to the grade book. So in my old traditional grade book, you know, I'd have assignments and assessments and they'd usually be exit tickets as well. You know, lesson one assignment, lesson one exit ticket, lesson two assignment, lesson two exit ticket. And when you'd open up my grade book when I taught traditionally, you just see all this kind of partial credit, four out of 10, five out of 10, seven out of 10, and none of that really meant anything. So the kind of grade that it would spit out when it averages scores for kids, maybe they get a C, a D, a B, an A, no one really could piece together why. In the modern classroom, it's simple. When you master something, you get full credit. When you don't master something, you get no credit. So if a student masters seven out of 10 lessons, they got 100% for 70% of the content. That's a C. If they've mastered 80% of the content, that's a B. Right. So it's actually quite easy to use a grade book and just follow that process. And more than anything, it's great information for the student. So when the student says, hey, why do I have a B in this class or why do I have a C? Well, you point to it and say, well, we've done 10 lessons and you've mastered seven of them. And if you still master the others, I can change your grade and your grade will go up. The other thing I say to folks, too, is we engage in a lesson classification process. Because one of the things we have to recognize is if we're going to let students work at their own pace, but still give assessments and we only let kids work at their own pace within each unit of study. So it's not like they're on totally different units. We figure out which lessons are must-do lessons, which ones are should-do lessons, and which ones are aspired-to-do lessons. And we'll excuse kids 
for aspire to do lessons or, sh or should do lessons if they're really going through a lot. So we want to make sure that we recognize what are those standards that every single kid needs to master? What are the ones we'd like them to master? And what are the ones that they can aspire to master? And then personalize that learning experience based on the unique circumstances of the student. So those are all key elements of the grading process that have worked quite well. And, you know, I think that's perfectly said because I, when I watch what you're doing, at least on the video and now in talking with you about it, I think about personalized learning and giving every kid the opportunity to kind of move at their own pace, do their own thing, but to prove to the teacher, in this case you, that they've mastered that concept and they're ready to move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of your colleagues in the video described your classroom environment as controlled chaos. Yep. So if you could kind of go back with me a little bit to maybe that first couple days that you rolled this out in your classroom, what was the reaction, number one, from the kids when you explained this to them? And then when your, your principal inevitably walks in to see what's going on, what's the reaction of the adults in your building? Yeah, it's a great question. So on the student end, I'd say the vast majority of students are actually deceptively malleable. Um, they'll do stuff. They'll try stuff, but they'll quickly give you feedback. So the vast majority of, of students started learning through the approach and actually really liked it. Um, a, because they were in control of their own learning. So they really appreciated that. Students really hate being rushed. Everyone hates being rushed. And it's amazing what percentage of students in a traditional setting constantly feel rushed. They don't really understand the concept at the end of Tuesday and they come in the next day on Wednesday and you've just moved past it. And they're like, hold on a second. I don't know what's going on. I wasn't fully clear on what happened yesterday, but you're saying, but we got to move forward. We got a pacing calendar and all that good stuff. They also, as you've highlighted, love the fact that you can pause and rewind the video. I mean, this is particularly powerful for students maybe who have language barriers um, or students who might be special needs and really just benefit from having a smaller setting where they can pause, rewind, and ask questions. So I'd say a bunch of the students really appreciated it. We had some, you know, the pushback oftentimes from students would be, you're not really my teacher anymore because I'm learning through some video. That was the gut reaction, right, which I always found interesting. And what I always tell folks who are rolling out this model is just prove to the student that you're actually more available, not less. As soon as kids start to realize that you as the educator are significantly more accessible as a result of the model, it creates a ton of relief. That initial fear from a portion of the students is that, oh no, my teacher's leaving me essentially and they're being turned into a computer. So showing that, hey, I can sit right here and talk to you all class if I want to, because I'm not putting on a performance in the front of the room and suddenly kids' anxieties drop exponentially. Um, from the adult standpoint, you know, it always depends on the perspective of the adult. Um, it, you were an administrator, you were in superintendent, you know, everyone has a different perspective. What I would say is any leader who walked into my classroom who focused on, in my opinion, the right things, which is what are students doing? They almost always were pretty wowed by the model because what they would see is a whole bunch of kids engaged, working and doing so in different ways and at different spots. So it was student centered. It was differentiated and it was data-driven. And those three core principles to me speak to what is most important about a classroom. And what they would also be able to see is just how often I was interacting in small group and individualized ways with kids. And any great administrator knows that's where the richest learning oftentimes is happening is those small interactions, student to student, student to teacher. And you know, it's so easy today to make videos. There are a lot of free tools out there. I use Screencastify, Screencast-O-Matic are just a couple examples. And, um, you know, I'm sure there are teachers out there listening, thinking, oh, my goodness, I have four preps. It's going to take me forever to make all these videos. But, you know, you're talking about pretty short videos because kids only have an attention span of, you know, probably less than 10 minutes. 
And then once you kind of dive in and do the work, then you've got it. And then you can just tweak from year to year. So what advice do you have for those folks that are kind of going to shrug and say, oh, my gosh, that sounds like a, an overwhelming amount of work just making the videos? So, I mean, I, we don't ever hide away from the fact that it's hard work and it's challenging. Um, what we tell folks is a lot of times when we were educators, we would pour our hearts into the planning process and didn't actually see that much of a marginal benefit. So if I spent an extra three hours on one evening planning more, it didn't mean the learning experience was that much better. The planning that you do in a modern classroom pays long-term dividends because every instructional video create you create can be used for many years to come. So what I tell folks is don't rush. If you have four preps, start with one prep. Start building out the resources. Two, once you get comfortable with the instructional video creation process, it's going to be second nature like lesson planning already is, right? So for me, building an instructional video is actually easier than writing out a lesson plan because it's intuitive to me. I create my slide deck. It's the same one I would have presented in the classroom. I record my voice over it. I know the annotation and animation elements of it and the video is created and it's six minutes long. So really being able to understand that A, you don't need to rush, B, that you really are gonna see a lot of long-term benefits of creating this work both in the classroom and years to come, starts to make a much more comforting kind of structure for you, especially if you wanna plan and start to create this stuff over the summer. I tell folks, I founded a nonprofit while teaching. That's because I founded a nonprofit after creating all my modern classrooms. So after I had built my geometry course out, my IB course out, my algebra two course out, well then each year I was focused on grading and giving feedback and making little tweaks to different lessons I didn't think were quite as effective as they could have been. But most of my resources will be created and uploaded on the learning management system. And that impact is real. And, you know, we're also talking a lot now about deeper learning concept. We're talking about project-based learning. So there are a lot of different elements, student choice, inquiry-based learning. And the Modern Classroom Project fits with all these different things. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we have said time and time again is that all those other innovations are really hard to pull off if you're stuck at the front of the room and kids have to be at the same lesson at the same time. So when we think about something like inquiry-based learning, inquiry takes time. And you can't expect every kid to inquire at the exact same pace. So it's much easier to infuse inquiry-based learning when you have the freedom to let some kids work more time on lessons while other kids work less. Project-based learning, I don't know anything that creates more variable progress and pace than a project. Right. Like, I mean, it's one thing to say you have to complete this lesson and this worksheet in 45 minutes. It's another thing to say you need to create this final product that has all these different parts. And that's going to happen at the exact same pace and time for every single one of your students. Incredibly unlikely. Right. So all the cool innovations we think about when we think about really powerful pedagogy, project based learning, 21st century skills, all that good stuff, all take time and increase variance in student outputs, right? Like kids are just ultimately going to spend more or less time on those activities because they're cognitively more challenging and newer to students. So we have to create flexible pacing. Otherwise, we just restrict the outputs that our students create. And ultimately most kids don't end up mastering the skills. And you have a great website and you wanna to go to it folks at modernclassrooms.org and you're gonna find a blog, a podcast. There's a free online course, a lot of great resources and a lot of great videos about kind of how the Modern Classrooms project really came to be. Uh, I know you're also very passionate about uh, teacher professional development mm -hmm. and um, how we need to also kind of think about doing that differently. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the way that folks can learn the model speaks to how we think about teacher professional development. So the first thing to understand is all of our resources are out there for free. So our free course, learn.modernclassrooms.org, there's about 28,000 teachers in there right now. And that course is a self-paced, self-guided learning journey. We don't hold any information back. You can go watch. Trust me, you'll get annoyed my by my voice because I built every video in there. But you're going to be able to learn the model that way. We also run a paid experience that's our virtual mentorship program, which is usually done through partnerships with schools and districts. We have about 1,000 teachers in there as we speak. And there's a couple elements of that model, the virtual mentorship program, that I think speak to our beliefs about professional development. The first is it's opt-in only. We want to give educators choice. Do you want to actually learn this instructional approach? If so, here's the professional development that's right for you. The second piece is it's almost exclusively asynchronous and self-paced. We have to respect and honor teachers' time. You do not need to sit in, in an hour block of time or two hour block of time and hear someone talk at you. Instead, you wanna be in a zone where you can work at your own pace and we honor the unique challenges of raising a family and being an educator and all those kinds of things to balance. And then the third piece is it has to be actionable. I think the thing that annoyed me most about poor professional development as it was theory driven, not action driven. I'd leave the professional development. I'd hear three buzzwords. One's a new one, two are the same. I've heard the last professional development. I heard a bunch of theory and I don't know any way I'm gonna merge that theory with the classroom that I'm teaching in two hours or tomorrow. Our model's all about creating. So in our virtual mentorship program, you are required to submit five assignments that get you to the point where you have a mini unit ready to launch with your students and you're getting feedback from an actual mentor, a real teacher who does this already. So you actually leave having created the things that you need to run a modern classroom, as opposed to learning about all the principles of a modern classroom, and then being left on an island to figure it out on your own, which drives me the most nuts. So I think when you think about those ideas of choice, asynchronous, kind of flexible PD, and ultimately making sure that it's action oriented. That's what we live and breathe at the Modern Classrooms Project. That's what we do for our students, and we should expect the same and create the same for teachers. Well, it's been a great conversation. And like I said at the onset, I, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I believe strongly uh, in this Modern Classrooms project. And, um, you know, just kind of as a closing thought, I, I want people to understand that this is not something that just works in a high school math classroom. This can work at the elementary level, middle school level. I teach in higher ed. I'm, I'm exploring options on how to roll something like this out in a higher ed environment. So just kind of speak to that as we wrap things up. Yeah, absolutely. So we have kindergarten all the way up to university professors implementing this model. The reason why a lot of folks will initially think it's a secondary approach, a high school approach, is because of that Edutopia video. It's in a high school classroom. It's my old classroom. It's in a director of teaching and learning's old classroom. And it's natural to think like, hey, this is how that model works. It's for secondary folks. I think some of the best implementers I've ever seen in, in action are kindergarten teachers. There is nothing about this model that's specific to any grade level or any content area. And the good news is we're recording this today 2021 in the summer, Edutopia is filming a series of elementary classrooms in the fall of 2021, and they will release that video. So finally, when folks ask for what does this look like in an elementary classroom, we'll be able to show another example of that. So I encourage folks to keep in mind that we are by design curriculum and grade level agnostic, because we know this model can reshape teaching and learning in any classroom, but ultimately the educator is the expert and should customize it to make it right for their own classroom community. Well, Kareem, again, uh, like I said, a wonderful conversation. And folks, you certainly want to check out what's going on. Follow Kareem on Twitter, 
and check out all the websites there and you'll be glad you did. So thanks for your time and have a great summer. Awesome. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast episodes. You also want to jump over to the Education Podcast Network to find the very best podcast PD for educators. You'll find many of my friends and colleagues over at EPN. So you want to follow us on Twitter at EduPodNet. And finally, I want to give a final shout out to Kareem Farah for taking a little bit of time to join me to talk about the Modern Classrooms project. It can be a game changer in your school, folks. So you certainly want to check out the website at the modernclassrooms.org uh, and you want to spend some time and take that free online course. I've done it myself and it was really wonderful PD and a great opportunity to take a deep dive into what that model looks like. So until next time, folks, be the change in your school district and always fight each and every day to create better schools for kids.